Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favourite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Kurt Kruger from Kurt Kruger Architects in Los Angeles. Now, Kurt is an architect, obviously, an award-winning architect, has amazing projects and a really lovely handle on detail and services like a beautiful upper end of clientele. In doing that, he has very clean style, very beautiful lines, but I would say an open style, like he'll work with where the property is and how it looks or where it's what's best suited. So you don't just go to him for a signature, you go to him for the personal service. That's what you get. And Kurt, welcome to Talk Design. Thank you. It's great to be here. I want to do the the regular kind of kickoff, like who are you is the is the question, of yeah. course. And and why architecture? Like where did you, where did you come from? And at what point in life 
did you suddenly realize that this creative ability was going to get funneled into architecture? What what happened? Yeah, so I can start off with the easy part, which is where I'm from. So I'm not from Los Angeles. I'm from the Midwest in a small town in Missouri, um, a town called Mexico, uh, Missouri, oh. believe it or not, of 11,000 people. Um, so to me, growing up, I never knew really of the profession of architecture. I never had an example of an architect in my hometown that I could look to. Didn't even know it was a thing um, uh, or a, a career path. Um, actually, for me growing up, what I was always good at was drawing. Um, and uh -huh. So I would always be sketching, drawing things, people getting in trouble in class for, you know, uh, sketching and uh, <laughs> for myself and for other friends, but um, didn't know really what to do with it. Um, I loved art classes and I thought I would pursue a field somewhere um, down that road. Um, when I was in uh, a junior in high school, so a year before graduating, I had a geometry class and um, I was never good at math, but for some reason, geometry just clicked. It was easy for me because I that, could visualize it. Yeah. Ah, right. I was going to say that's yeah. amazing in itself, isn't it? Because yeah. you would have thought that to do the geometry, you'd need the math. No, because like, I mean, and still to this day, like I, if you were to give me that say, algebra or calculus question i could not guess what the answer is it would be way off it's too many formulas and things like that but at least with geometry it's shapes lines yeah. um and so even if i knew what they were going for i could usually guess pretty close even if i didn't know the correct like way to work that out and so that was the only math class i ever did good at and so you know i had um my teacher at the time she knew i was you know excelling in art classes she said well what do you think about architecture and quite honestly i never thought about it but from there i started pursuing that started taking drafting classes in high school and when i got to college it's just something just clicked on that um i, I think probably what was nice to me anyway is that unlike a lot of my colleagues or uh, colleagues fellow students at the time that yep. were in art um they you know were good at it. I was very uh, much like I could take literal things, draw them too precise. But where I wasn't as good at was some of the very like abstract things. And so what yeah. I found, like I had limitations in art that I that I felt that I wasn't, you know, going to be as good, or I couldn't quite break through some of the my own personal limitations on that. But I felt that with some of the practical things of let's say geometry and architecture, blending both the artistic with the practical for me was just the perfect blend. And, and that was it for me. So uh, for me, where I was never a, uh, I would say probably an okay, a little bit above average student. When I get, got into architecture, it just clicked and it was fun and exhilarating. And I never looked back. That's amazing. I love that. I, I love that. that Because one of the things that, you know, when you're playing with art, there is when you're totally freehand or when you go to say something like technical drawing where you're actually totally like rule it up the blend in between I, I have this experience if I'm going to draw something and I think I'm mine I think is born from laziness but I go I could draw it freehand just freehand but I get and if it's coming out of my head I get annoyed if it doesn't have the right form 
like I, yeah, draw it like this, but then is that really possible because of the length of that versus that? And and so I go, I always say to people, I'll draw it freehand because that will give me balance naturally, yeah. just balance. Yeah. Then when I actually try and maybe put that on a block of land, I can't maybe quite do that because it's not as mm -hmm. wide or it's not as whatever. So I try to draw my freehand within some boundaries, some set boundaries yeah. so that I go, okay, don't just be so free for that yeah. reason. Yeah. Similar no, thing. That's, that, and that's it. No, that's really interesting because what I've also found, at least with my own work, and this goes back to when I was a student to professional, that those boundaries are actually very important. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that blank slate is is great. And when you can work on it, it's fun, but usually you don't get those types of situations. There's always going to be some sort of constraints that you're working with. Yep. And I find that the problem solving within those constraints end up making the most wonderful solutions because, uh -huh. you know, when it can be any or anything, then, you know, it's great. But then uh, to me, it's much more challenging. And then it's like, okay, well, do I really have an acceptable solution because I have a hundred other solutions that could work. For yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. Whereas yeah. I might be working with three or four that could work for this. Yeah. 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 And then you sort of know that, okay, I, I'm starting to hone in on something that's specific here. These are my constraints. And then that's, what's cool when you really feel you got it, then it's like, okay, I've really got a solution based on this specific condition, but yeah. you wouldn't have that without the constraints. Yeah, I, well, I, it's this is what fascinates me because if I get the blank, I'm I'm doing a, a, a farmhouse at the moment, and it's a it's huge. The the farm's big and flat. I can put the thing anywhere, like, mm -hmm. and so we've chosen a spot for it. But there's no restraint in in, in distance or anything like that. Yeah, and I'm going. So do I make it this wide or do I make it this long or do I? Yeah, and and I have to take myself to the point of okay i'm 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 designing it inside out in a sense because i'm going okay mm -hmm. if i've got this width here then that would give me the flow to be able to do this next point whereas if i was restrained by two boundaries i would be going okay so the maximum i can get out of this and the maximum i can get out of that is this yeah. and then that's going to leave me with this <laughs> yeah yeah no i i hear you and that <laughs> just reminds me of a project i'm working on now and Pacific Palisades, where it's yeah. a very challenging site where no, I was involved with the homeowners when we were, uh, when they were looking for lots of land to build on. And it was a site that was really overlooked, even by the realtors, they weren't selling it, it actually had sort of these hidden ocean views, it, but it also had challenges, you had an easement that was running right down the middle that was unable to build on, we also have um, uh, conditions that were there like a, um, a natural water stream at the bottom. So buyers and developers, they wanted to stay the heck away from it. But it was this gorgeous site because it's a very greenery. It almost looks like a wooded area in the wow. Pacific Palisades on the coast, which is yeah. almost unheard of. And so it's challenging because you have those constraints. You, but what I find is that working with that site and the restraints of that site, plus the building code, the city restrictions of height, setback, a lot of it ended up informing how we were shaping things, how the heights and the grade of the hillside made the roof torqued. There was a lot of things, but what I found was these constraints actually ended up informing a lot of the design. And, you know, there could have been a lot of ways we could have gone, but then there really couldn't. It just depends on, you know, where you wanted to go with that.
it, it forces the creativity. Yeah. 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 And then, then it's, then it's a creativity with problems. Cause now, okay. Yeah. I've got, it can't, it, it can't be anything. And I've got to ch- uh, solve this problem of how to work within these boundaries. Yeah. I think that uh, to me, that um, yeah. is probably what makes architecture so exciting. It, it, yeah. uh, it, to be boundaryless, I have to draw myself some boundaries in so that I can attack mm-hmm. it. And I certainly know that I will go, okay, so if I don't if I don't have restraint, I go um, put restraints around myself. So then I'll, mm-hmm. I'll come up with three or four scenarios that might make me restrain it in some way mm-hmm. so that I go, okay, now, now I've got to think. Now I've got to actually apply the problem solving. Yeah. 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 That, well, and, and I feel that, you know, just from my own experience, it takes a certain level of I guess, design maturity to be able to force yourself to have that certain level of restraint and control over it. Because, yeah. you know, what's the first thing, you know, when we're in design school that we want to do is that, you know, these are all theoretical projects. You really don't have necessarily the constraints. So, you know, sometimes you want to go, you know, wild with them and they can be great and great design experiments on it. But um, sometimes having that level of control ends up making for a nicer project. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think so as well. I, well, it's certainly, um, it sounds like for you, it works. And then, for, so therefore it works for your clients. Um, and it, uh, it it certainly does the same for me. It, it makes me work harder and it certainly creates, when I say work harder, it, it's no harder work than the other. It just makes me create something that's really well informed rather than being loose with that. I always think of, you know, if you did that to someone like um, Calatrava, what would happen? You know, he's trying to mm-hmm. he's trying to make a bird, you know, fly out of something, and uh, and be a piece of architecture at the same time. And mm-hmm. the the mind game of constraint must be completely different. <laughs> I'm sure it is, but I'm sure it has a lot of similarities too. Um, you know, one of the things that as you're describing that makes me think of is how. Uh, we pr- like to practice, which is many of our projects we actually uh, do as design builds. So, um, you know, I partner uh, with, uh, you know, my friend and partner is a general contractor on this and, um, and it makes for a wonderful projects. But a lot of times, you know, I have colleagues uh, as architects will be like, well, why do you like want to get involved in all of that stuff? Isn't that a lot of too like, you know, practical isn't that going to then just start like limiting what it is that you can do because if you do that then you know you're working with such like you know you're getting the constraint of the builder as well yeah 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 but i find it actually the opposite because the more that you're involved with let's say the people that are building and shaping us the crafts uh men and women that are doing this it's amazing what you can learn and then the possibilities become open because as you know when I was younger as a junior architect, like you only know what you know. And so the more you know about how things are coming together, how things are fabricated, then I just go to them. Hey, what do you think about this? Like, I'm thinking of this. I really don't know how to do it, but like, this is the design idea. Mm-hmm. And then that spitballs into a lot of other things and you get those craftspeople involved in it. And it makes for something that I never even knew was possible. So quite the opposite of being limiting i think it actually opens the door to much more creativity and not a limitation 
I, I, I'm a hundred percent. You're singing off my hymn sheet, you know, like I go with it. One of the things that happens is if I just draw something um, and they go, I don't, we can't do that. Or mm -hmm. they'll come up with a million reasons, whatever it is. And of course you've drawn it as you're drawing it, you're thinking it through as to where you could be and, and how mm -hmm. it might be constructed. Maybe not to the detail that they need it, but just, you know, it, it's not like you're asking for a sky hook to hold the, the roof. Mm -hmm. You might be, but then they'll mm -hmm. tell you the constraints and then you work within them. Mm -hmm. What I find is, is when you get the a build design build team like that, you're asking and pushing for what may be possible. They start out with trying to constrain you and together you get to closer to what might be possible that you're saying about versus what they would have done if you hadn't been there to to grow with them they would have just kept shuttering it down they'd have gone no 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 we can't do that for yeah, this reason that's true yeah and you get great innovation out of it and you get this thing and along the way you can have the conversation that you go so if we do this what kind of money is this going to be and they go oh well phew, that's going to be expensive and you go well what's expensive you know, like what kind of expense are we talking? Are we talking, ah, mm -hmm. oh, well, it'll all have to be done in steel. Yeah, yeah. So what would that steel cost be, do you think? Oh, well, uh, look, there's $15,000 worth of steel in that. Okay, I can live mm -hmm. with that. Cool, keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rather than, because yeah. mm -hmm. they're looking at it in this little piece yeah. instead of in the broader piece, rather than them just killing it right at the start, you get this ability to grow the idea and then get really great things out of it and be aware of where your budget's heading along the way. It's um oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's great not to have that filter um, of the general contractor between yourself and let's say the subcontractors, the, uh -huh. some of the fabricators and uh, tradespeople, because to me, you know, that's where you learn the most about, you know, how things come together, how to put a building together is, you know, that I learned from them, you know, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, people tend to take the opposite route um, when it comes to design of dictating what you want to others. And there, there can be a time and place for that. But what I think that the best collaborations come with is that if you're stating your design intent, and then you're working with those that are making it happen, uh, to me, that's the best because yeah, anything is possible then. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree. I think it's um getting that piece just locks it together, and and ultimately the client's the winner. So the client's yeah. the your client's the winner, and then the builder becomes the winner, and you become the winner as well. And 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 sort of retrospective that it falls out from there that everybody wins in that situation. As I say, well, that, there's, yeah. there's lots of people yeah, who and, go don't do it, like don't do it, like. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, when it works, that's the, that's the idea is that you're both, everyone's on the same team and the client is winning on that. There isn't the finger pointing, there isn't trying to one up or outshine the other. It's like, you're bringing all of your best traits and skills as a team into it. And you're on the same side of the table and yeah. you have the same interest. And so to me, I, I think when it works that it's a beautiful way to execute projects. Mm. That's great. I love I love hearing that. I love hearing that. Um, tell me about in the Los Angeles area. Obviously, you know, it's a 
a relatively complex society and uh how did you end up so you 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 somewhere you came from mexico missouri you ended up in los angeles tell me about that piece of the journey and then how you i don't know found a foot in the door there i mean it's a busy place it's everything else um tell me that story yeah so um i went to uh architecture school also in the midwest in uh kansas at kansas state university and then after that what i uh, did was instead of working at a um architectural firm i uh worked um for an architect actually building homes i was swinging the hammer and being out in the field um uh, at a amazing place um over in lawrence kansas for uh, a professor and architect named dan rockhill and uh-huh. so even though uh you know it probably drew drove my parents crazy of why would you get out of school and work in construction when you have an architectural degree uh, to me it was the part that fascinated me about you know uh architecture with how things are going to get built and yeah. it was a part that i felt that i was missing in some of uh my uh training yeah so using that uh, training and i also had done a little bit of that working uh, as an intern when i was in school in uh, north carolina for frank harman um that allowed me to end up uh getting a job while i was in kansas in Los Angeles for Marmor Radziner, which is a design build um, uh, firm for high-end luxury homes. And so I was there for about four years. And then after that worked for another um, uh, high-end firm, but this was one that was really the builders for some of the well-known, you know, Stark and Tech, so to speak. So, you know, we were building homes for, you know, Richard Meyer, Waltney Siegel, um, and yeah, wow. uh, some others. And so, that, that was fun and doing our own work as well um uh, yep. you know the my boss it was architect he was trained as an architect but he was a, a builder and so we were doing a combination of both and so leading that architectural team was great because you know you get to learn a ton and you're <sighs> using uh, you know and looking at how these other great architects are developing designing detailing and to me it's almost like a school case study I was so about to me to it was a, it was a blast because i'm just like really i'm getting paid to do this like i'm looking at like these amazing details and execute it seeing how it's being built in the field so to me that's what gave me both the the confidence to be able to go out on my own but also the skill set to be able to do it 100% like you to this day i love being able to get hold of somebody else's plans um and everybody thinks i want to you know well i don't know everybody thinks I think that my perception is is that people think I want to steal the design. I'm not interested in stealing the design in the slightest. Yeah. The design's the bit I do this job for. Yeah. What I love is being able to see the way they execute things. Yeah. I want to see the actual plan set. I want to see how it's drawn. Yeah. I want to see, you know, I want to I, I want to see that stuff and then to go, you know, when it's on site. So I go to the place and I might know the builder like you're saying and see it being developed and actually going together and going huh so why did you do that that way like mm-hmm. I, I i think that's just yeah. yeah i think there's so much that you learn and um it's like going to, it's like being taught or, or, or going to school yeah it's yes yeah, yeah and because it's not just because there's two aspects to it it's the how did they design and put their drawing sets together yeah. which is a fascinating case study in and of itself but then 
how did from the building side was that <laughs> taken and executed whereas a lot of these homes let's say with you know guac me seagull we were going down to you know a 16th of an inch or 32nd or 64th tolerance on this i mean there was no room for error on this that they were strict grid lines and you think about when you're building how do you lay all that out you've got to think about every layer of finish um how it's because if that's moved off more than the 16th uh, of an inch or then it throws the entire it, thing off. The tile lay might not work. Busy, you're going to hear yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this is the thing, you know, like it's it's one thing to design something with the end in mind and it's another thing to, to design it from the end in mind. So, yeah. you know, this is the tile we're going to have and then if this is the tile we're going to have, this is how many it's going to fit across and this is what's going to happen to make that work. Don't come, don't make me come in here and shave, you know, an inch off a tile. It's because yeah. if I do, somebody's ass is getting kicked. Yeah. 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 Which is, which probably makes me a little bit weird in my drawing sets, even to this day, where I can't I, to rather than one. just showing, rather than just showing like a shaded wall, I'm showing the layer of the rough framing, then the, a layer of sheet and that goes over that to the finish layer and all of those they matter because you know like i always tell our you know junior architects on the team is that when you draw this stuff it is going to get built and these different layers we can't just show a generic six inch wall what's inside of that well it's two by six that's five and a half inches plus another half plus your finish layer inside and outside and guess what happens all that meets a corner all that meets a window what happens in those conditions so if you're not thinking about that now, I can guarantee you when it gets to finishes, we're going to come up against some big problems. And so, so yeah, it seems, uh, you know, obsessive, but it makes a big difference, uh, you know, when, when it all comes together. A hundred percent. Um, I don't know, like here, when we draw a, a building plan, you know, a construction set of drawings, we don't show the, the finished wall finish on it. We, when hmm. I say that, if it's an internal wall, we don't show the sheetrock. We show the framing. So it's mm -hmm. it's dimensioned yeah. at, at 90 millimeters. Well, that's mm -hmm. bullshit, though, because it's 110, because it's got sheetrock on either side. And in <laughs> right. fact, the, the, the next piece is, is there's probably two mil of glue on, on yeah. there as well that's holding it on. So it's actually 114. And then yeah. so what, what happens is, is if you're trying to be exact on something, you, the the plan shows hundred uh, shows ninety mil, but we're really hundred and fourteen mil when it hits the ground. Yeah, yeah, and no, that's true. And then and then it's like, well, how you know your client asks, how big is the room? Well, you know, you can measure it off of that, but let's add the finish, and now suddenly, what you lost a couple of inches in your space of the room. It's yeah, so. Yeah, but that's sort of the thing where, you know, I've had other architects just tell me like, well, why do you do all that? Like, that's the builder's job to figure that stuff out. You just give them like what the basics. <laughs> I'm like, but you know what, from my experience, they don't figure that out. Or like, if you don't tell them, like, that's part of like where you're making that roadmap for how they're going to execute it. Because yeah. if you don't tell them, most likely, you know, it's not going to be what you want. Here's the analogy that works so well with that. Google Maps really, really upsets us when um, it isn't accurate enough to drive into a driveway or if there's two roads and it can't separate which one we should turn on to, this mm -hmm. one or that one. Um, yeah. We go, really? 
and yet we we would be happy to say that's the that's the my wife's problem or whatever if you're in the car <laughs> and then we go that's the build that's for the builder to work out Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's fascinating. Hey, you said Frank Harmon. Tell me about Frank Harmon. Yeah, I mean, Frank was, um, it still is, a, he uh, is not practicing anymore, but still, uh, you know, uh, has even a blog that's out now that he uh, does some of his writings and drawings in. But he was a fascinating um, uh, person to work for because. I learned about him while I was in school and he actually lectured at my school in Kansas. And so um, I interned while I was in school for him and he did a, a lot of design build work. Um, and so one of the projects that I was working on him was for his brother's house in South Carolina. And at the time um, it was interesting because he was working with the local fabricator on how to make these modern hurricane shutters that opened and closed against the glass for hurricane winds and forces. And so it was really, this was just one example, but being able to go down to South Carolina and actually building that, putting these heavy steel frames that were using off the shelf type of um, walkable uh, metal plates that you would just get out of a McNichols catalog. Yeah, wow. Just those types of things were just fascinating to me because how you could do beautiful, you know, modern architecture with just very simple materials that were just off the shelf or off, you know, agricultural parts. Ag which is ag agricultural, yeah. yeah. Things that yeah. things that are always available. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, and how you assemble those together in a poetic way, that's what I really appreciated because, um, you know, a lot of the projects didn't have the types of budgets that, you know, uh, that we're working with now, but yeah just how the craft of putting something together shape and form was always fascinating. And um, what I always thought was great about Frank, um, other than being a great architect, is how good of a teacher he was. And he taught at the university there, but he would make time to help explain how things were coming together. And uh, that's to me is really where he shined in both educating the people that work there, but also, um, you would see it even when he was standing in front of a room presenting a project in front of you know clients. It was just a very clear way and poetic way of describing things that um, you could really tell it resonated with people. And, and it wasn't overly complicated. It wasn't Arcus speak, but it was very plain talking way that people, they got it. They didn't, uh, they, it, it, and it was resonating with things that were very everyday, natural type of things uh, you know, in say the environment. Yeah. It sounds like that, you know, the, the 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 this the method of like being able to take something out of you know the agricultural supply and then turn it in not turn it into use it in the mm -hmm. construction of something that is you know beautiful modernist architectural piece, mm -hmm. and it sounds like he actually carries that through in the way he describes things to people as well. It's like I'm I'm. He's talking at the. I'm doing my. I'm. I'm. I'm all excited now. He's uh, talking at the Texas Society of Architects. So he's presenting when I go to conference uh, on. Oh yeah. This yeah. He's 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 one Man. of the presenters. I know nothing about him other than I've gone and 
you know, like stalked his work and stuff. And yeah. then all, all his beautiful paintings and stuff, like his yeah. books and things. And when you said it, I'm like, Frank, um, and it was like, Bing, what? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah, you oh, should cool. uh, definitely try to talk to him if uh, you can. You're, you're in for a treat with, uh, you know, his talks. I always learn something, you know, whenever I, you know, uh, hear him <laughs> talk or present things. It's always, it's a, like I said, if you haven't heard him before, it is certainly a treat. I haven't. I've, I'm, I'm going to invite him on the podcast as well, and we'll see if he yeah. comes on. That would be really cool. That would be yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that that was great little <laughs> to get that insight on. Yeah. I wrote down the time so I can go back and listen to it again and go, okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me with this, in uh, – developing your practice so you came out to los angeles and you you told me how kind of how that came to being but you came out to los angeles and did you work for somebody else there first and then set up or did you just yeah. set up yeah and that's how um you know what brought me to la is that through working design build yeah. um uh with uh dan rockhill on uh, some projects that um gave me the, I guess, ability or qualifications to work um, at Marmol Radziner, which is, uh, uh, you know, a design build firm in Los Angeles. So I worked there. And then after that, um, after about four years there, worked another um, uh, three or four years at um, a company called Aria Group. That's the one that I was describing that where we did our own uh, design projects, but also worked with architects to build. So, um, and, and then really from there, that's when um, I decided to go out on my own and work on, you know, own projects and develop a practice. Yeah, cool, cool. Because I imagine it could be, and this is all me making stuff up, um, Los Angeles could be a fairly dog-eat-dog world. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of stuff going on, there's a lot of money mm-hmm. going around, there's, mm-hmm. you know, um, and to set up there, you know, you go from you could end up you know doing bus stops or something, um, but you didn't. Right. You ended up yeah. You ended up in this de- designing beautiful homes. Like it's uh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's and well, it, it's and we're very lucky, and it is a, a, a niche, but it was something that um, you know I've just been blessed and lucky enough to have training in that uh, mm. certain sector to be able to know how to execute something like that. But definitely grateful for you know having worked for some very talented people and learning directly from them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love the journey of it. I think it's fascinating. Really, really cool. Um, setting up your own practice and having your own practice. Yeah. What, what, what mm-hmm. if you were telling your younger self, um, what would you do differently with that? Like what would be the, the thing that you go, you know what, this would have been so much smarter. Mm-hmm. Well, good question. Um, <laughs> I think on that one, probably the biggest thing is when you're going out and on your own as a younger architect, you're very hungry, you're excited about projects, you like to have the ability and control to be able to design what you want. I would probably say to myself is keep an eye on the other things on the business side of it, because this is not just a, um, a, vocation and artistic endeavor but it's also a business and you've got to be able to uh not only you know survive but you know then when you want to expand and bring on team members it's no longer becomes just a 
hobby or a fun activity. You're responsible for not only yourself, but other people. But so to me, getting those things in order, uh, you know, rather than just doing everything solo. And to me, I think when you're doing that for a certain amount of times, it's fun and it's great. But at the same time, you know, you're really responsible for yourself, which unless you get really serious about it, which for a certain period of time, you know, uh, on the business, I wasn't as much as I should have been. I would probably tell myself that like focus on the full picture. This is a profession. It's not just a hobby. And um, you could still do great work and great projects and still, um, you know, be treated fairly, compensated fairly. So to me, that's, you know, probably the biggest thing. I think that's really wise advice. I think it's really wise advice. Um, one, there's the 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 practice of drawing. Uh, you know, two two things here. One is is I love the word practice because we're always practicing. We're yeah. practicing to do the be- next best piece of work that we can do. But then coming back from that, there's the technical side of the technician side of the business, mm-hmm. which is designing and yeah, producing drawings and all those kinds of things. And then on the other side of it, there is the financial side, you know, making sure that you have a sustainable, healthy company mm-hmm. that uh, can take care of other people as well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's such a, uh, I suppose, a, a blessing to be able to do enough business mm-hmm. to be able to help somebody else live and their family live yeah. and, you know, influence how they, not how they live, but make them, make their life secure. And they get to follow some of their passion along the way as well. Yeah. And I think it's largely, you know, and I'm not sure if this is something that is, you know, uh, in architecture school, you know, the whole idea that, well, you know, you're not, uh, you're going to love what you do, but you're not going to make a lot of money. So it's more of a passion type of profession. Um, And and that's sort of, I think, sometimes gets ingrained into the extent that, um, we don't always value what it is that we do. What we mm-hmm. do has tremendous value to our clients. And I think the more that you practice and that you realize this and that you have projects and you see that um, material impact, um, you know, the good clients understand that and they, um, and they know that that's why they're bringing you on to that. So I think sometimes for us as architects and designers, we just have to learn that. And um, it's sometimes an internal game more than anything. I th- yeah, <laughs> often often it is. It's interesting. I I recorded a podcast with a guy called Mike Dyson, Mike Mark Dyson, um, yesterday, and uh, he's in Japan, and we were talking about what architecture can do, and in that, you know, like you just said, oh, it brings incredible amount of value to the the people who you do it for. And he does a lot of commercial work. And we were talking about community making in the in the, the work that he does, where they create community and people um, discover each other in, in this communal sort of spaces and stuff. And with that, I'm thinking about how, you know, when architecture is, especially in public architecture, but when it's, uh, I want to say, easy, if if the architecture guides people naturally, if it does mm-hmm. these things, if it if it makes their life simpler and mm-hmm. more um, peaceful, it gives them more space in their mind and in their being to mm-hmm. actually, uh, I suppose, grow from it. To to it releases it releases something from them. 
They, the things aren't a nuisance or things aren't hard. You know, we've all mm-hmm. lived in places, I'm sure, or maybe not some of the privileged people that listen to the show, but I've certainly lived in mm-hmm. places where the door swung the wrong way or the hallway yeah. was just too narrow and you bang into things and you yeah. couldn't move it, maneuver something through it or, you know, it always felt a bit cramped or whatever. Mm-hmm. We've all, we've all lived in those sort of things. And that, um, when you can remove those feelings, from a space and then in fact enhance them it brings great value that's not even seen and and for generational families like so people with their children if their children experience that they won't know they're experiencing it mm-hmm. until they experience mm-hmm. something else but they'll, yeah. that, that sort of lifts the base level and that's yeah. what community is about and what i think architecture is about you know everybody lives in something um mm-hmm. And because they live in something, whether it be a tent, a car, a house or whatever, they live in something and because they need it for shelter. With that, we've got a, this huge responsibility to make it the best it can be for yeah. the for what it is. And that makes their life that bit better, which makes the people around them their lives that bit better. And it flows yeah. on. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. And it's... Uh... And it's funny that you were pointing out some of those things that of design and you a lot of times great design, it'll feel great, but you don't usually know why it is. You know, you feel the other effects from it. But when it's bad design, like this this space, you can't really open this way. You notice that right away. So, um, you know, it's something that, you know, when we're designing, you're right. It's something that we need to try to elevate beyond just, you know, the basics. We providing shelter, you know, a roof yeah. over, you know, your head. Um, it's what goes beyond that more into a, um, something that really satisfies the soul as well. And that mm. it elevates your spirits every day to me that that's really what's great. And, you know, all those things that goes along with it, that we can talk about when it comes to like details, how things feel, um, all that has a play on how light is brought into a space. Um, it, it's amazing that sometimes these sound, I think, to us because we do this every day this is you know these can be something that's every day for us but these are profound moves that a lot of you know people don't have that every day and that's why there is so much value in what we craft and shape because it provides these profound experiences and memories um into all those that are you know inhabiting those spaces yeah uh, th- I think that this, it, as you say, like cha-ching, it's that's it. What what people kind of miss often is they live in their home. So everybody can experience, not everybody, uh, most people can experience great architecture, especially mm-hmm. if they live anywhere near anything that's civic, you know, like mm-hmm. libraries and civic yeah. buildings and stuff, because there is a lot of care given to those and mm-hmm. usually great not great, but good architects are the um, designers of them. And so if they come out of their home and they then connect themselves into maybe, say, a library, a public library or a public park with with development Mm -hmm. and stuff and with buildings, if they can connect themselves into that, they can actually experience amazing architecture often Mm. without realizing that that's what they're doing. Well, and you also think about, you know, you know, people that, you know, aren't overtly into architecture, mm-hmm. what 
a lot of times when we're traveling, what do we want to go and visit? We want to see some of those architectural sites, whether we know it or not. And why is that? Because there is something about it, whether you can articulate it or not, that is quite um, profound. It it creates wonder. Um, there's a lot of things that it does for the imagination that people are attracted to, whether they know that that is architecture or not. That is what what is happening there. And when yeah. people are talking about destination traveling or visiting landmarks, that's what it is. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I have one last question for you. Sure. It is going to be, it's one of my favorite questions. Um, and it's, it can be tricky, but you can make it as simple as yeah. you like. Okay. It is. If you had to do one last project and that was it, you can't, do another project. You can't talk about what you've done. You can't do anything else like that. You've got one last project, but you can choose what it is. What would you choose as the last project that you ever do? Mm, wow. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's a fascinating project. The last one, not just what I would like to do, but the last one. Yeah. Okay. You don't get to shift it. You don't get to change it. This is it. Done. Okay. Well, to me, I think it would be something that had to do with a place that is valued or a place for some sort of worship or um, a spiritual destination. And the reason for that is that I feel that whether that is a place that is either um, like a church or chapel or something like that, or even just a place in nature that serves that type of soulful experience. I feel those types of places are valued in the long term, uh, even more than perhaps, you know, homes are. This is a place that seems to be, um, have a sacred value to people. It connects with them um, in things that we try to do with, you know, our design mm -hmm. of even homes. It's, you know, it's spiritual. It's something that, um, you know, really connects to people in an elevated level than just the practical need of it. So to me, I'm not sure what that would be exactly, but I think the program and the function, that's what I would say. It would have to be something like that. I love it. I love it. It's so interesting. I asked this question of lots of different people. It's interesting. Your answer is, is there's a quite a few people who have said to me, uh, a designer church or, and mm. then there's the people that just did what you did. They want the community or they want people to be, feel themselves. So there's two parts there. There's one where it's how do you create com a communal space or a space that's available for, for many? Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be for a few. And then the other is, is where you went at the end there where, okay, so, but this could also just be in nature. This could just be, this could be Yosemite National Park. It could be, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have to be a, a necessarily even a building, it, it it could just be a clearing, you know, like it's like how simple could the form be? Um, yeah. Yeah. I love yeah and when you think about that, yeah, exactly. It could be a clearing. And when you go to a place like Yosemite or you look at, you know, in California, some of the oh, yeah. redwood uh, forests and stuff. I mean, what is more cathedral like than walking through yeah. and having the light filtering through, you know, the branches and the leaves and that. And it, it, it's just that it, overall experience of elevating just from you know the normal every day that just it inspires it uplifts and yeah yeah and when you can bring you know both from the personal individual level and then have the community aspect 
aspect brought into it. Uh, to me, that's it. That's, that's an amazing project, whatever it is. I love it. I love it. Man, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. I'm looking forward to catching up in LA with you. Um, yeah, likewise. Yeah, it'll be really cool. Um, go and finish your day at work. Thanks for taking the time out to do this. We will post all your socials, all that stuff. People will know how to get in touch with you. Listeners, if you want to know more from Kurt about what he does and how he does it, you'll be able to connect to him via our website, Talk Design. And if you've got questions, by all means, please, please ask us. Send them to me at Talk Design and I will get them to Kurt and we will be able to give you answers. That's part of what we do. Kurt, thank you so much, man. Thanks so much, Adrian. We'll talk soon. Yeah, we will for sure. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, let's say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.